1: Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of the MMA Torch Livecast Tuesday Conversation. I am MMA Torch Editor Jamie Penick. My co-host tonight is MMA Torch Columnist Matt Pelkey. It is Tuesday, November 20th, 2012. And we're coming off of uh, George St. Pierre's successful return to the octagon in his first fight in 19 months last Saturday at UFC 154. Um, Matt, it, the the event on Saturday had a few decent fights through the uh, through the undercard up until we got to the final two, which provided us with uh, the biggest highlights of the night. But that main event, George St. Pierre, Carlos Condit. Absolutely lived up to everything we could have hoped for from the fight, I think, and uh, uh, was was easily on the short list for fight of the year candidate. Um, what did you think about uh, the main event Saturday? See,
0: <clears throat> not for me. It, it, to me, it looked like every other George St. Pierre fight we've seen for the last four years, uh, save for you know the the flash knockdown with the the kick in the third round where he had to recover. So he, there was at least that moment of drama in the fight. But other than that, it was same old, same old from George St. Pierre. So on that front, I thought it was a really impressive performance by, by George St. Pierre. But mostly I came away disappointed with the performance of Carlos Condit.
1: See, I didn't I didn't really get that as much uh, as I was doing it live. And maybe it was just the drama of the moment and the fact that we did get that third-round head kick and that moment in the fight. Um I, I guess I can see a little bit of the, the disappointment in Condit because of the fact that he was just stuck on his back for you know 23 minutes of the fight. Um, I, I think the biggest criticism that can be levied against Condit is he didn't open up enough uh, when the fight was on the feet. He was very cautious. He was very hesitant to really engage with St. Pierre in, the, in uh, the striking exchanges, and obviously... When you're getting taken down at will, that that can discourage that. But even early on, even in the first round, he wasn't really opening up with anything. That was uh, when that was when he needed to take advantage of what are considerable striking skills that he brings to the table. And um, I I don't know. I guess I I was not disappointed by anything in the fight. Uh, Certainly could have seen more from Condit on the feet, but. He still provided that that near finish and nearly took St Pierre out, giving us you know partially what we thought we'd see from him. So I don't know. I, I don't I don't get disappointment from from the fight myself. Well, here's the thing.
0: He and he said in the, his post fight interview, you know, well I thought I could create uh, more scrambles. So that was kind of what was surprising to him from from George St Pierre was that he was able to be controlled like that. Which I mean that's understandable, <laughs> but. There, there were three aspects uh, of this fight that Carlos Condit needed to capitalize on uh, in order to win. Three, three different areas. One, when it's on the feet, he needed to be really aggressive, throwing crazy techniques. You know, running in uh, aggressively if he had to. I mean, if he gets, to, he's going to get taken down. He had to know that going into the fight, and certainly he did because he was planning on trying to create some scrambles and maybe catching him in a submission in the process or, or using sweeps to get back to his feet, whatever the case may be. But, you know, he needed to be ultra-aggressive on the feet, and he was tentative from the start. He he needed to kind of bull rush with his, with his striking the way Chael Sonnen does with his takedowns, like he did against Anderson Silva. He needed to come out firing flying knees and throwing kicks. Uh, I, I mean, look, he, he threw that, that head kick and, and knocked him down in the third round why wasn't he throwing that over and over and over again? He he had to know. He he couldn't have expected to be able to stay on his feet throughout this fight. Um, So that being said, he should have been way more aggressive on the feet. He he did succeed in in being aggressive off of his back with submissions, which was another area that he should have been looking for. Uh, So I thought he did well in in that area. He He was constantly looking for arm bars and triangles and things of that nature but that was probably the lowest percentage area that he was going to be able to beat George St. Pierre. What I was really disappointed in was we we know, we've seen uh, George St. Pierre, despite being one of probably the two, you know, uh, a top two fighter in the history of the sport along with Anderson Silva, he tends
1: to freak
0: out when he's hurt. Uh, we saw it again in the third round. When he got knocked down. He he just kind of flopped to his back and, and got mounted and, and had Carlos Conant on top of him raining down punches and had no idea how to defend himself. Um, when Carlos Kahn was on his back, George St. Pierre is one of those guys that he his his, his face and his body really shows the damage that he's taking. He's kind of like uh, Mark Hominick in, in that in that vein where you punch him and it looks like you punched him eight times. Uh, if Carlos Conant knew he was going to spend that much time on his back, why was he not furiously trying to throw elbows to George St. Pierre's face from his back. Cut him up, get George St. Pierre freaking out about the blood coming out of his face. You know, we've seen George St. Pierre go to his corner between rounds uh, and fights and, and, and you know, tell Fraz or tell Greg Jackson, whoever it may be, you know, oh, I think I hurt myself, and he has to be, you know, talked off the ledge, basically. Uh, I just felt like Carlos Connor should have been much more aggressive with his elbows when he was on his back trying to open up some cuts. Uh, and gets george saint Pierre thinking about that and and he really only excelled in in one aspect of of the fight where he had a chance to to really do some harm to george saint pierre uh and, and that ended up being the the most you know the least successful
1: option I think at the same time what what george St Pierre does so well with this top game is is constantly make you uh defend the passes that he's that he's attempting or uh, try to get out of a position that you're just not going to get out of because he's so adept at keeping you on your back even if you're uh, a fighter that, that can transition back to guard or uh, you, know, you know, we saw several occasions where St. Pierre would uh, pass to half guard, even get to side control a couple of times and Condit was very effective at getting back to the other positions but then his concentration is going on that aspect of the game, instead of being able to furiously rain down those elbows from the bottom, um, I get where you're coming from with it because yes, there there was a lot more that could have been done, and, and Saint Pierre's face was still busted up worse than perhaps any fight that we've seen him in. Uh, and that that uh, image, uh, I think it was Esther Lynn took the photo of him at the post fight P- press conference with the ice bag just right up next to the, the hematoma on the side of his head. Um, That was and in an, uh, kind of a lasting image from this fight, and it's it, it's tough because Conda did have some success in there, but yes, you're you're right. There are there are things that he could have done a lot more effectively that than he did, um, and the the aggression was definitely lacking. That's that's the main aspect of yeah. his game that he just did not show off on Saturday night. We didn't see him do what he did against Dong Young Kim. We didn't see the type of flurry that ended Rory McDonald last year. Um, or was that two years ago? I can't even remember now. But, um, this, yeah, I, I mean, he just didn't get it done. He didn't get it done. And St. Pierre, I think the fact that he was able to still control the way he did on the ground after 19 months out of action, out of the cage, and uh, and everything was still impressive as all hell. And uh, it was a very, very big win uh, for St. Pierre coming back, considering where he was just in December.
0: Yeah, I think we we had our reservations. You know, he'd been out for 18 months or so, hadn't fought. He's coming off of major knee surgery, and he's 32 years old now. So there were legitimate concerns about, well, how is George St. Pierre going to be when he comes back? Is he going to be the same guy? Is he going to be able to, to shoot and take people down whenever he wants to? Is he going to be able to control people? Is he going to be able to to suck the life out of people through the first three rounds on the mat to where he can comfortably stand up in rounds four or five knowing he's the fresher guy and knowing he's put that idea in his opponent's head that, you know, if I get close to you, I'm going to take you down. So they're, they're – very guarded in their stand-up. They're very uh, tentative, very timid. And yes was the answer to all those questions. I mean, this was uh, a brilliant performance by George St. Pierre. I, I, I say, you know, my criticisms of, of Carlos Conant take nothing away from George St. Pierre's performance here because I, I think cool. considering the opponent, considering all the circumstances, this has got to be uh, one of, if not the best performances of George St. Pierre's career.
1: Yeah, it's it certainly miles ahead of what he did against Jake Shields and um Dan Hardy especially the Josh Koscheck fight is one you know we go back to our conversation last week in the preview and um Rich was very correct about it that that's one of those fights where he was so effective with the jab and did so much damage that even though the fight went 5 rounds it makes it it makes it hard to um sometimes remember just how much damage he did in that fight, and, and Kozcheck was out for several months because of the eye injury. He didn't come back till what September of last year, so at almost nine months because of the broken orbital bone and um, everything. That 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 fight should have been stopped, but this was definitely his his best performance in a fight where it was mostly spent on the ground um, since he beat BJ Penn back at UFC 94. But, I mean, and you can look at the, the Koscheck fight, and, and
0: certainly that was a great dominant performance on his part, but, you know, even Josh Koscheck was a, 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 you know, not the multidimensional fighter that Carlos Conant is. George St. Pierre could tailor his game plan around, well, I'm just going to, you know, keep the fight on the feet and jab, and jab and jab and jab and jab and jab, and that worked beautifully. I didn't think he had the same such luxury with Carlos Conant. Uh, he was thought to be at a disadvantage on the feet and he was thought to be you know certainly not at a disadvantage on the mat, but uh going up against a guy uh you know if if he takes Josh Koscheck down, if he takes uh John Fitch down, they're they're not the threat uh off their back to, to submit George Saint Pierre. But Carlos Condit was and, and Carlos Condit did everything in his power to try and pull off those submissions and he just couldn't. I mean George Saint Pierre uh is not a, certainly not a perfect fighter but I thought he fought nearly a a perfect fight against uh maybe his most dangerous opponent uh in, in all areas to date.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely and and it sets up now what uh what could be the the big super fight that we've been talking about for I I mean it's been hinted it's been discussed for several years. Just hasn't, the timing hasn't worked out to come together. And now, if there was ever a time to make Anderson Silva George St. Pierre, it is right now. But before we get into what could be the negotiations for that, where it'll go, how that fight could play out, another wrinkle was thrown in on Saturday night in the co-main event. I mean, talking about it last week, we weren't seeing too many ways the Johnny Hendricks Martin Campman fight would provide us someone that. You know necessarily should fight anderson Sil- or should fight George St Pierre over Anderson Silva right now, but Johnny Hendricks knocking Martin campman out cold with that excellent two punch combo in under a minute uh he's at least put himself in the in the conversation and if the the super fight doesn't come together because George St Pierre doesn't want to move up or whatever any other myriad of reasons that. Something could fall through, which obviously we'll get into here in a, in a little bit. But if that fight doesn't come together, I really want to see George St. Pierre, Johnny Hendricks right now. Or at least at least I'm a lot more interested in that fight than I was Saturday at, say, 9 p.m. Eastern. <laughs> um, what did you think of Johnny Hendricks' performance, and uh, what do you think he would have to offer – Against George St. Pierre because of his wrestling game.
0: Well, there there wasn't much to the performance. It happened so quickly and so suddenly. Uh, I, I think going in the the common thought was, well, if Johnny Hendricks is going to win this, it's going to be him uh, catching Martin Campbell with a big shot and then having to pile on those. I mean, I mean think of think of the the Martin Campman Paul Daley fight. Paul Daly just landed huge punch after huge punch, and Martin Campbell was you know basically out on his feet, but he was backed up against the cage, and the fight was stopped while he was still standing. Uh, I, I did not expect, and, and, you know, it was a two-punch combo that he threw, but it was really only a one-punch shot that landed. The first one was kind of setting up that big uh, left hand, and it, it almost looked like, you know, Joe Rogan always talks about whenever uh, Lyoto Machida fights, you know, the the karate philosophy being, you know, if you could focus all of your energy into that one shot, that perfect shot, Johnny Hendricks threw that perfect shot, I mean, right on the chin, and it was very reminiscent of the uh, Rich Franklin-Nate Quarry knockout, where he just fell flat on his back, and that was, that was it, just falling a, in, in a heap on a straight backwards. It was uh, certainly, I think, a, a late entry into the KO of the year uh, conversation, especially considering who it was against. Um, I don't think that Johnny Hendricks did or could have done anything in this fight, or or Martin Campman could have done anything in this fight to make them a, you know, to to make us go, well, you know, we can can save that George.
1: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No purchase necessary. Boy, we're prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. St. Pierre's Anderson Silva fight for later because we've got this this exciting option right here. I, I don't think anybody was going to do anything that would put them in front of uh, the Anderson Silva door St. Pierre fight. Um, that being said, it does give them an, a, an attractive, intriguing option for a, a a title challenger if they can't make that fight come together because it happened on the same card. The, the timing obviously works out pretty well. Uh, and it was about as good of a highlight as a guy could have in, in announcing himself as a uh, a title contender. He's he's basically a, a better version of Josh Koscheck. I think a, a little bit better of a wrestler. And whereas Josh Koscheck basically just tries to throw that overhand right with everything he has every time he throws a punch, he doesn't really, you know, people with one shot like like that. Johnny Hendricks has has crazy power. Uh if if he lands that punch on George St. Pierre, I mean that's it's over. Uh George St Pierre isn't isn't uh isn't gonna survive that punch if Martin Campman with one of the best chins in MMA can't. Uh so in, in that sense, yeah, I and mean, that's that's about as good of what as what the UFC could hope for because there's still, you know, uh there's still Nick Diaz out there with a the a money matchup with George St. Pierre if he could win a fight. So it, it gives them a lot of intriguing options, but I think first and foremost at the top of that list is still going to be trying to put together the George St. Pierre-Anderson Silva super fight.
1: Yeah, and, and obviously uh, Hendricks' uh, big power shot, it's it's not a fluke. The, the The win against John Fitch can't be considered a fluke anymore when he followed it up against someone like Campman, who had never been knocked out cold like that. It, it's taken accumulation of punches against Paul Daly and Nate Marquardt, two guys who hit really, really, really hard um, to stop him in the UFC. So that's uh, it, it, it's a very impressive feat on that part, front. But, I mean, there's also the other caveat that we've seen Johnny Hendricks against wrestlers, and he's, he's struggled. He's struggled at times, and uh, his loss to, to Rick Story stands out with that, but he's also improving his striking game, and if he's honing his wrestling up against George St. Pierre and can find a way to keep the fight on the feet, which is a near-impossible task, but if he somehow did it, that would be definitely a lot more competitive fight than anyone would be would have been expecting coming into Saturday. Um but it's not the fight that people are going to talk about right now. It's not the fight that's more than likely going to come together because the last obstacle is out of the way to have George St. Pierre fight Anderson Silva. It's um, it's going to take some negotiation here in the next couple of weeks because the side talking about this fight has all been Anderson Silva. It's been Anderson Silva and his camp saying they want to fight George St. Pierre. Um, they threw out... 177-pound catch weight, and said, you know, that's right in the middle. That's fair. We should do it there. But George St. Pierre has got all of the leverage in this situation. He's got all of the leverage when it comes to the negotiations because he's not the one that's been clamoring for the fight. It's been Silva. It's been the UFC. That is who wants this fight to happen. They want to put it at uh, Dallas Cowboys Stadium more than likely, or at the Rogers Centre in Toronto, or at a stadium in Brazil. But I think the neutral site is probably going to win out there, Cowboy Stadium. But they want this to be the big, big super fight. But Saint Pierre still not ready to leave the welterweight division. So, with all of the leverage in his corner, I think he's going to be moving to get this fight as close to 175, as close to 170 pounds as possible. Um, I think it's likely we see this come in at around 174 and and make Silva cut those extra few pounds in the hopes that the the weight cut takes something off of him um, to even things out a little bit from the size and strength standpoint. Matt, where do you think we're going to see this fight take place at? Because I I think it's going to be in that 173 to 175 range that it finally comes down at because I don't see St. Pierre agreeing to 177 or above.
0: That's it's it's so disappointing to me because Dor Saint Pierre is is five foot ten, Anderson Silva is six two, so it's a, a four inch height difference, which is, you know, it's significant, but it's not abnormal, it's not huge, it's not insurmountable. And Dor Saint Pierre is uh, you know, he keeps himself very lean. He probably only cuts uh, you know, he says ten to ten to twelve pounds or so to get down to that one seventy, but it's because he keeps himself So low in weight to make that weight cut easier. If he didn't do that, he's a guy that would be walking around at probably 190, 195 pounds based on, you know, just the the muscle mass that he has on his body right now. If he took a couple months and and put a little bit more mass in his body, he'd probably probably be up close to, you know, 195, 200 pounds. Then it's really not that big of a size difference. Uh, I mean, it's George St. Pierre that keeps himself so small. It's not uh, naturally how big he is. It's not that big of a size difference between the two guys. He's a little bit thicker, naturally, than Anderson Silva. Anderson Silva's a little longer and lankier. Um, Anderson Silva's a guy who enjoys uh, eating, you know, whoppers all the time, so he lets himself balloon up to 210 pounds or so uh, before he makes his cut down to 185. Um, I just I just feel like this is George St. Pierre uh, dodging Anderson Silva, basically, uh, he's never wanted this fight, even though it's a fight that each of them would make, you know, probably upwards of $10 million a piece just for the fight. Um, so it's disappointing to me that he seems to have uh, an excuse at, at every turn. And, and now I'm sure the the his line of logic will be, well, you know, I just came back and defended my 170-pound title, and now, uh, you know, obviously there's this new contender, Johnny Hendricks, that I need to, to take on because he probably looks at Johnny Hendricks and goes, oh, I could put this guy on his back and beat him up just like I do to everybody else. Um, so I, I worry that Doris St. Pierre is just going to keep, you know, coming up with excuses, and, and eventually they're going to say, all right, well, we need to book some fights here if this isn't going to happen, and we get Anderson Silva against whoever and, and Dorse St. And Pierre against Johnny Hendricks. But hopefully his, his competitive spirit and competitive drive Will compel him to uh, 177 seems uh, very fair to be. That's even one pound closer to Georges St. Pierre's weight class than it is to Anderson Silva's, and that's a, a ridiculous. I mean, that's that alone. Uh, I mean, Anderson Silva cutting down to 185 has to be somewhat draining for him as it is. Cutting an extra eight pounds on top of that would, excuse me, certainly do the trick. So I don't, I don't know why they seem to need. Well, we need four extra pounds. They're basically admitting. You know we're we're scared of the size difference, and we need Anderson Silva to be weaker to uh, to win this fight. Uh, so I, I don't that's not the kind of talk I like to hear coming out of a corner when you're trying to set up a fight. Um, I think ultimately the fight does get done because money's going to talk, but I, I think it's probably farther away uh, at this point than than people realize and, and would like to think. Well,
1: I, I I think you're taking a bit of a pessimistic approach, and I I don't know that I I think it's necessarily fair to St. Pierre in this situation because, as you mentioned, he's never wanted this fight. He's never asked for this fight. He's never been the one clamoring for this fight. And he's said time and time again that if he goes up, he's not coming back down. Because if he does put that extra mass on, it's going to be a lot harder for him to get back down to the lean spot he's kept himself at and, and... He's been very straightforward about his position on this from day one. And and so I I don't necessarily see it as him dodging Anderson Silva as saying, well, you're the one that really wants this fight. I'm not ready to move up to another weight class or put on the, the mask that I would need to do to do this, so you got to come meet me closer to where I'm at to even things out. And, yeah, it's not necessarily – I don't see it as, as big of a – Size disparity or issue as um, a lot of people do. Uh, I I do honestly. I'm I'm with you that walking around after making weight, Saint Pierre will probably be up around 190. Anderson will be, you know, walking around around 200 after, or actually, he'll probably be closer to the 195 range. They'll probably be pretty even after making uh, a cut to 174 or 175, and the height difference isn't that big of an issue because it's exactly what Saint Pierre just faced against Carlos Condit. It's the right. Condit's about as tall as as Anderson Silva is, so the issue here is you know Saint Pierre has never clamored for the fight. He's never been the one to try to make this happen. So if Anderson and and Camp really really want it to happen, I, I don't see anything wrong with Saint Pierre saying, "Well, it's got to be closer to Uh, you've got to make some concessions to get down here if you want this fight to happen. I don't see it as dodging. I think it's smart on his part um, when it comes to how this fight has been talked about and put together uh, without him having much of an input to this point.
0: Why doesn't he want this fight, though? That's what's never made sense to me. I mean, Chael Sonnen uh, showed us the blueprint for beating Anderson Silva. Be aggressive. Don't let him get comfortable. I mean... Part of the problem with Anderson Silva's uh, opponents is they always come in fearing him, and they let him have his one minute to a whole round of, you know, loosening up and finding his timing and finding his distance before he really gets going. And and by that point, the fight's already over. Chael Sonnen just, you know, bull rushed him and attacked him from the get-go, put him on his back, and held him down and beat him up for five rounds. The only problem was Chael Sonnen had neither the gas tank nor the submission defense to to last all five rounds with that strategy. George Saint Pierre absolutely has the uh has the uh endurance and, and the conditioning and the uh the submission defense to to ride out that strategy for, for five four rounds. It's the strategy he uses in every single fight. Now granted I don't think in rounds four and five he'll let Anderson Silva up and, and, and be content to play around on the feet thinking he's got it as his opponent, uh, you know, beaten at that point, and he'll probably stick with it for all five rounds. But I, I just, I, I don't understand. It's, it's. Georges uh, St. Pierre understands that he, he's not just fighting for a title anymore. He's fighting for his legacy. He's not ending. You know, obviously, he's not ending the uh, nearing the end of his career. But he's, he's certainly probably on the other side of his prime at this point, and, and has maybe only two or three more years at, at top form uh, left in him. So. He, he he knows he's fighting for his legacy, and that's the ultimate legacy fight for him. Um, so maybe he wants to wait another year or two till Anderson Silva is nearing forty to do this fight. Maybe that's the case, but it just seems like now would be the perfect time for him to, you know, it. it especially being the smaller fighter coming from the smaller weight class, this is this would be a fight to determine you know who the greatest fighter of all time is. Uh, we we could finally settle the argument, and, and George St. Pierre seems like. Uh, the perfect matchup to, to make that happen and, and pull off that win. So it's just never, I mean, I understand Anderson Silva on the feet is is unlike anything we've ever seen, and George St. Pierre doesn't like getting punched in the face. Uh, he doesn't react well to it, never has. So that's obviously the big concern for him here. But there's so much more for him to gain than to lose in this fight. It just It boggles my mind that there's still so many obstacles in the way of it happening.
1: I think the counter argument to that is why does this fight have to be one that comes together for either fighter's legacy? Why, why does the super fight have to happen? What's wrong with having two amazing dominant champions in their weight class just, you know, ride out their career as the dominant champions in their weight class. It's, a, it's the same reason that Anderson Silva, John Jones doesn't need to happen for either of their legacies. Anderson Silva. Yes. Beating Forrest Griffin the way he did was was fantastic, but his other light heavyweight uh, opponents, Stephen Bonner and James Irvin, I mean, yes, what he did was amazing when he went up there, but it's not like he's gone up to 205 to test himself against the best of the best. And for George St. Pierre to to take a fight with a a fighter who has competed at a higher weight class for so long against... uh, Fighters who were heavier than him. So Silva's got experience against uh, a lot of bigger fighters, uh, working uh, who have taken him down. It it's one of those. I, I think there is something to lose for Saint Pierre in losing because it would be another loss that he doesn't want to take. He's not. He's obviously a fighter that uh, takes losses hard. He only has uh, the, the two, right? It's it's just Matt Hughes. And Matt Serra, obviously, yep. he's avenged both of those, but it's it's not something he wants to necessarily experience. And and of any opponent he'll ever face, Anderson Silva poses the greatest risk of defeat that he's ever that he's ever taken on. Because um, uh, you go back to the Matt Hughes fight; the first Matt Hughes fight was um, a starstruck young kid, not ready for the opportunity that he had against Hughes. And when he was ready for it, the next time he, next time they fought, he took him out. And when they fought again, he took him out again. The Mad Serra fight, he wasn't taking that fight seriously after winning the title, and he got clipped. And he changed things up so that that didn't happen again. Going into Ander- the Anderson Silva fight, yes, I've I've said for a really long time we could probably go back. To- With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. from our, our show archives, from when we used to do our old podcast, Matt. And
0: In fact, we set my guest bedroom on a, a mattress on the floor.
1: <laughs> we can go back to those old shows when this talk of this fight first started coming up. Yeah. And I've always held the contention that George St. Pierre is, is the type of fighter who could beat Anderson Silva. I honestly think that he very well could win that fight.
0: I would pick him Pierre. to win that
1: fight. By doing exactly what you were talking about, but it's – there are still a lot of risks involved in taking it, and I don't necessarily – this is where I stand, because I I want to see the fight. I do want to see the fight, but I wouldn't hold it against George St. Pierre if it didn't come together, because I also understand the argument for it not needing to take place. It doesn't have to happen for either fighter's legacy, in my opinion – and if it doesn't happen, it'll be disappointing somewhat that we don't see it, see it come together. But it's also not the end of the world, and it's not the end of either fighter fighter's legacy because they'll still be the best fighters to ever compete in those weight classes.
0: What, which, to you, is is the fight that you would rather see: is it Silva GSP or Silva Jones?
1: Of the two right now, Silva Jones because of the the, the, stri- the striking of John Jones, how far that's come, and his wrestling, his combination of wrestling and striking is something that Silva hasn't ever had to really face. So that that fight's more intriguing to me.
0: Yeah, that's probably true. Uh,
1: <laughs> I, I I just I don't know.
0: It's it seems like uh, both are destined to happen, and, and Silva GSP is is the first one up on the docket. So uh, we've been it, we it would almost happened uh what, after UFC what one twelve, the one in Abu Dhabi, where they were they were ready to have the like in cage confrontation, I think, between George St. Pierre and Anderson Silva. The, Joe Rogan was talking about it. If Anderson Silva wins this fight against Demi and Maya, they'll fight George St. Pierre next. And then after two rounds, Dana White apparently got so angry that he handed the belt, the title belt, to Ed Soares and said, here, you put it on him after this and left. Uh, and, you know, it never came that close to happening again. Now it just seems like we've we've come full circle back around to it being the right time. Both guys are on the, the same schedule at this point. Um, both guys are, are looking as dominant as ever. So I, it would just be a, a shame if we lost this opportunity uh, yet another time.
1: And don't get me wrong, I want to see the fight. I really do. If they put it together at Cowboy Stadium and I have money by May to travel down to Dallas, I'm going to Dallas for that fight. I mean, that's that's one of those that I would absolutely uh, make sure that I was there if I could make it work. It's one of those fights that I would absolutely love to see. But I also understand the reasons why St. Pierre is not jumping at it and why it hasn't come together immediately. I do ultimately think it happens. I think we'll probably see it around 174, 175, and I don't think there's anything wrong with GSP's camp making Silva's camp uh, make some concessions to, to put the fight together.
0: Yeah, I, and and God help me if they put that fight in Vegas. I understand that people you know, like to go to Vegas and, and gamble and that's where they put big fights usually. But this is the fight to put in, in Cowboys Stadium. This is the fight that you can sell you you can max out the capacity of that place and, and sell a hundred thousand uh tickets to it and, and have that absolute spectacle uh of a fight. And and guess what? People they'll travel to Dallas too for a fun weekend. There's there's things to do in Dallas. Uh Jerry Jones, I'm sure, has made made sure of that. Um so just please God, don't don't do what they did with Anderson Silva, Chael Sonnen, and move it out of what was going to be a stadium show in Brazil. And I'd be fine if they they had this fight in a stadium in Brazil. It's just a fight this big, the the spectacle that it's going to be, you know, the the surreal moment that it would be when when the two guys walk out and, and are standing across from each other in the cage. To have that in a twelve thousand seat you know casino auditorium would just be a, a crime to me.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely agreed. Um, On the other side of this conversation is obviously if that fight takes place, what happens with Johnny Hendricks? Well, he says he wants to wait out a title fight. It's what Carlos Condit did, didn't take any other fight. I don't like that idea. I don't like the idea of any fighter waiting out for a really long time to, to get a title fight. One, because injuries can happen that delay things even further. We saw it with Rashad Evans. We saw it uh, with um, Carlos Condit, uh, who ended up having to fight Nick Diaz for the interim belt. Um, we, we've seen it happen with a number of, of fighters where things don't come together necessarily as planned. Uh, it's with Dan Henderson, actually, most recently uh, in the John Jones fight, so... I don't think it's a good idea and I especially don't think it's a good idea because right now I kind of want to see Johnny Hendricks against Nick Diaz.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's an appropriate fight. I think Johnny Hendricks against uh, Carlos Conant would be appropriate. I, I, I know that the UFC generally likes to keep fighters on the same winners fighting winners and losers fighting losers, losers trajectory, but that kind of gets thrown away when you're either A, at a certain level as a fighter, you know, if you're a a Tito Ortiz or a, a Randy Gautour or something like that, you know, one loss records kind of get thrown out the window anyway. And, and the matchup is just kind of whatever makes sense at that point. But it also, it, it tends to, it can be thrown out the window when you get towards the top of a, a card like that. Carlos Condit, you know, despite losing to George St. Pierre is is not out of the uh, the UFC welterweight title picture. He could certainly come, you know, put put two impressive performances together and, and, uh, you know, have earned a, another crack at George at St. Pierre, whoever the champion is at that time. So uh, I think that's the the luxury here is that if you do set up George St. And Pierre, Anderson Silva, you know, welterweight is in such a good place that there's there's options. Uh, I mean, if if, Nate, if Nick Diaz comes back and fights Josh Koshuk, I think that's a fun, interesting fight. Uh, you know, there's, there's Johnny Hendricks, there's Carlos Condit, there's whoever emerges out of the... Uh, Rory McDonald, BJ Penn fight coming up next month. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's a good situation for the UFC where you just kind of can't go wrong by, by putting uh, any of those top contenders together right now.
1: The main card on Saturday in Montreal was rounded out by Francis Carmont getting a questionable split decision win over Tom Lawler in a fight that kind of exposed Carmont as not quite the next big thing that people were Somewhat hoping to see out of him Um, It's not a good performance Not a good fight Uh, Rafael Dos Anjos had a very Very uh, Good performance against Mark Bocek Out wrestling Bocek And doing what Bocek normally does To opponents which is Making his opponent look like A worse version of themselves Um, Dos Anjos was fantastic But the standout performance On the main card outside of the top two fights For me was Pablo Garza Um, a a really great first round with Mark Hominick that uh, saw Garza go down from uh, a body shot, uh, Hominick pounced and nearly end things there in the first round, and then Garza came back and ended strong in the first, and not only that, he completely switched up his game plan in the second round, took Hominick down repeatedly and worked a very very smart, effective, and intelligent ground-and-pound game to bounce back from from two losses and hand Hominick his, his fourth straight. Um, this was one of those fights that, that showed, I think, evolution from a fighter after suffering a couple of losses in a row where he had been put on his back. Um, it, I, I, this was Garza's most impressive, most complete performance, and it's, it's a sad decline for Mark Hominick now, who just four fights ago, he was fighting Jose Aldo in a fight of the year candidate at UFC 129, um, and now he's 0-4 uh, in his last four, and probably on his way out of the UFC. It's, it's it's a sad fall, but a big fight, big win for Pablo Garza. Yeah, very uh, especially sad for me. Uh,
0: I've made no uh, no attempt to hide my love for, for any Mark or excuse me, uh, Sean Tompkins trained fighters. So this was. An especially disappointing night for me uh watching mark hominik and, and sam stout both get uh basically dominated in their fights, you know Hominick looked good in the first round you know he's one of the best uh one of the best body shot technicians in the sport uh and you know he goes in with that killer instinct he had he had garza hurt and went in for the finish and just couldn't get it and and garza you know all the credit in the world survived uh, everything that hominik threw at him and and came back to very possibly have, you know, won that, that first round. I, I still gave the round to Hominick just for landing the dropping him with a body shot in the offense that followed. That ended up as a very close first round and then an absolutely dominant rounds two and three. Um, you know, it it's it's refreshing to see a fighter make in fight adjustments the way Pablo Garza did in, in adjusting his game to say, all right, I think uh I think Mark Hominick kinda you know, maybe blew his load in that, that first round, and, and I think he was right, put him on his back, and he didn't have a way to, to really get back to his feet, and, and he wasn't going to uh, tap Pablo Garza off of his back. Uh, so in that respect, it was a little a bit reminiscent of the, uh, you know, Phil Davis little nog fight for me where, where Phil Davis uh, switched to, to going for single legs in rounds two or three to, to pull out a decision win there. Um, same same type of thing. Uh, just a, a really good performance by Pablo Garza, a guy with a, huge, huge upside, uh, considering his, both his skill level, his, his youth, um, and his, his frame. I mean, he's, he's really tall. He's really long, especially for 145. Uh, and he's a guy that if, if he keeps, uh, evolving, like he, it looks like he has, then he's, uh, a guy that's going to make some noise at 145 in the next couple of years.
1: Uh, to the preliminary card on FX. Uh, that things ended on a bit of controversy with the Alessio-Sakara-Patrick Cote fight. Um, this was actually shaping out to be uh, a really, really exciting fight. Cote hurt Sakara early, um, couldn't get the stoppage, and Sakara came back and hurt him uh, and, and then landed a series of elbows against the cage that uh, dropped him. Um, and as as Cote grabbed for a leg, Sakara just started unleashing hammer fists, and at least seven or eight of them were directly to the back of Cote's head. Pretty um, much all of them. Yeah. Uh, there were one or two that looked like they might have snuck in as legal shots, but in, in the midst of that type of flurry, it was ridiculous. Um, I mean, you go back to the Eric Silva-Carlo Prater fight in Brazil, um where I th- was it Steve Mazzagatti or Mario Yamasaki in that fight that called the DQ? I, I like can't was, remember.
0: I feel like it was Yamasaki.
1: Yeah, I think it was Yamasaki. And, and, um, Silva landed a couple that were, that was a lot, that was a really questionable decision. This was clear cut, should have been a DQ, but again, we have reffing issues because Dan Mergliata, um, didn't appear to give any warnings to Sakara. He didn't halt at the action because of the shots to the back of the head, um, and it looked like he was waving it off as a TKO. Um, at least according to Kevin Ioli on Twitter after saying he talked to Mergliata, he was claiming that he was warning Sakara during the series of strikes and that the delay afterward was to determine whether or not he could call it a DQ or if it was, uh supposed to be a no contest based on the commission's rules that was the the story as it was relayed on Saturday night um sure, sure did <laughs> uh it's it's questionable here because of the way Mergliotta handled things ultimately there's not a chance that it should have been an Alessio Sakara win those were all illegal blows directly to the back of the head um, but i mean a case could be made for saying it's a no contest but I also think that it should have been a disqualification. And I think, ultimately, Mergliata ended on the right call. It was the getting there that um, leaves a lot to be desired. What did you think of that entire sequence and how it was handled by Mergliata?
0: Uh, I, I mean, that's how it was handled poorly by Mergliata. Luckily, uh, DQ, I think, was, was the right decision there. So I'm glad it, it, it came to that. What's disappointing for me is that Going into this fight, I mean, you look at the, the matchup, and you, it's, you know, two guys who, who like to stand and bang. Uh, I think Saqqara is probably a little more dynamic in his striking, maybe a little more technical. Uh, Patrick Cote is more of a, a, a straight boxer. But, you know, they're they're both big power punchers. The difference was that uh, Alessio Sicara has a historically very shaky chin, and Patrick Cote has... Historically, one of you know certainly uh, one of the top five chins in the sport. You know he's he's right out there with a, a guy like BJ Penn, where no matter how hard you hit him, no how no matter how big the shots are, he just kind of walks through them without being phased. He's got one of those kind of chins, one of the the granite Sam Stone kind or Sam Stout kind of chins. So it was you know strange for me to see and exciting. You know he he hurt Sakara in the beginning, and, and as soon as that happened, I went well you know this fight's over. And then Sakara comes back and lands those huge, fantastic elbows up against the cage, and and you know uh, staggered Patrick Cote. And if he had just thrown those exact same hammer fists to the side of his head instead of to the back of his head, we'd be talking about how Alessio Sakara is the first guy to not only you know knock down or even hurt Patrick Cote, but he knocked him out stopped him with strikes. Um, but just because of the placement of a few of those, I mean, it's it's not like he only knocked them out because they were to the back of the head. I mean, Patrick Cote was in was in deep trouble when Sakara started throwing those hammer fists, and if he just throws those to the side, you know, to the temple, uh, he probably only takes, you know, he probably only needs two or three of them to, to knock out Patrick Cote instead of seven or eight like it took. So I, I feel I'm a little bit robbed as a fan that we'll probably end up seeing a rematch for that fight because it it was a fun little fight uh, from what we saw of it. Um, So we'll probably see a rematch so we can get a a clear-cut winner. And when we see the rematch, it's probably going to go down the way we expected it the first time where both guys are trading punches and and Sakara drops because he doesn't have the gym that Patrick Cote does. So from a historical perspective, I know this is kind of small-scale things with Patrick Cote and Alessio Sakara, but uh, it would have been at least something to see Patrick Cote go down for the first time in that manner. And and, uh, because of the illegal strikes now, the history books will be rewritten and probably uh, corrected to what we thought we'd see going in.
1: Yeah. I think there's also an argument to be made um, with the way that Cote was grabbing for the leg that had the hammer fist gone to the side, he still might've recovered because of that chin that we've seen in the past. He was hurt He was rocked badly. It's possible he could have still recovered if he hadn't taken shots directly to the back of the head. I think that had a major effect, and you could see him start slumping even further and go out. I I don't think the shots to the side of the head, unless Sakara was being pinpoint accurate in such a flurry, I I don't necessarily think that they would have stopped him, Uh, and I think Cote at least would have had the chance to recover against the cage there. Um, shots to the back of the head robbed him of that chance, and thus the DQ is justified.
0: Yeah, I, 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 that's that's certainly a possibility. But, um, you know, I hope we get to see the fight again because I was enjoying the, the couple minutes that we saw of it.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, and um, I,
0: you know, the, the technique that he was using, is it just me or has that become a much more common thing in, in really just like the last year or so? Guys throwing those big elbows to the head from up close when guys are backed up against the cage. I feel like, is it, is it Costa Philippou who's kind of made use of that in his last couple of fights? It's just, it seems I've to be a really, that, yeah, a, yeah. A really effective technique uh, that's, that's just kind of popped up. You know, we, we talk about how oh, the, you know, the jabs are, the jab is still one of the most underutilized techniques in MMA, but that's kind of one that's just uh, snuck up and been a, a really uh, exciting addition to the MMA sport. Yeah. I mean,
1: and we, I, I think the thing is we've seen a number of fighters utilize it and once people see it others start catching on that hey that's a viable yeah. um viable option. I mean you go to like uh Nick Denis in January yeah. uh yeah. against Joseph Sandoval where he knocked him out right in the middle of the cage yeah, with that those was, short that elbows, or, uh John Jones and uh Rashad Evans where he was Reaching out his arms, but then coming over the top with elbows, I mean people are getting a lot more creative with that, and it's always nice to see an evolution in in offense and and new ways that fighters are utilizing to uh to be effective in the cage that's that's definitely nice to see but all uh, elbows do is do is cuts right <laughs> yeah, elbows only cut people that's that's the only thing that happens. Uh recapping the rest of the, the preliminary card on Saturday night, um Thrill Diabati Diabody choked out Chad Griggs. Griggs um you know is such a great fighter that he allowed Thrill Diabody his only UFC submission. Um John McDessie had a very impressive um performance against Sam Stout. i really, really liked what we what I saw out of John MacDessy who looked like he worked on his takedown defense because he shrugged off everything Stout was throwing his way, not that it was the most difficult grappler to fight. Um, but Mcdessey just outworked Stout. Uh, his head movement was fantastic, avoided pretty much all of Stout's offense throughout the fight um, and continued to pop in with, with jabs and big strikes. So it was a good performance from John McDessie. Antonio Carvalho took a split decision over Rodrigo Dam in a fight that I'm not even going to remember. I, I don't, don't remember, remember now. Really, yeah. Um yeah. Matt Riddle beat John McGuire uh, in an easy 30-27 uh, twice decision. Ivan Menjivar pulled off a really, really nice armbar against Azamat uh, Gashimov or Gashminov as. Mike Goldberg somehow <laughs> pronounced on Saturday that. night. Um, and then Darren Elkins dominated Steven Siler in a fight that was, why is Darren Elkins on the first fight of a Facebook fight? Uh, <laughs> Darren Elkins, he's now four and oh in the featherweight division. Although one of those is a questionable decision over Michihiro Omagawa. He's four and oh. He dominated the hell out of Steven Siler in an entertaining performance. Um, and yet he was opening this this facebook uh portion of the card so uh i'd, I'd yeah. like to see him
0: against pablo garza on like a fuel tv main card fight
1: that would be that would be interesting that'd be a very it's interesting the, matchup same um, level type guys but yeah really it was it was you know Diabati with a nice dominant performance over a fighter who shouldn't be fighting in the ufc john McDessie improving um in a lot of aspects of his game. And then Ivan Menjivar pulling off a really, really nice armbar submission from the bottom. Um, and yeah, that's, that, that's what stood out to me. Anything else you want to say on the uh, FX and Facebook prelims from Saturday night? Well, just,
0: uh, I've been not as high as uh, well, most people, it seems on John McDesky. Uh I know he's, he's a good striker, but it just, it didn't seem like he was so good that he was worth uh a the the hype that he'd been receiving and b the fact that i thought he was fighting like six weight classes above what he should be fighting um but to see him just completely dominate a a striker as good as as Sam Stout uh on the feet like that that was that was impressive and and he did it with with you know standard techniques he he just beat him to the punch with his jab throughout that fight. He was, uh, you know, getting off first the, the whole time. I mean, you know, he he was on point that that entire fight. Um, I still think he should at least be dropping down to, to 145, uh, A, because it's a, a thinner weight class. It's easier to make a splash there, and B, because you don't have the same, you know, shark tank of elite grapplers like you do at 155. Um, and, and that's going to be, you know, John McDessie's, uh you know weak point all the time i mean he's 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 not you know where he is in his career now he's not ever going to uh Im- improve to tor saint pierre levels of, of grappling um but he can at least uh improve his his takedown and submission defense uh to the point where he's not getting absolutely tool on the mat by uh by by fighters uh at, at 155 or 145 wherever he settles in but i mean that was that was a uh uh, an important, uh, a performance I, I, I felt uh, that warranted me uh, giving him some kudos because I haven't been uh, too terribly high on him on him thus far, but was really really impressed with him on Saturday night.
1: Uh, we've only got a few minutes left in the show tonight. Uh, we're running a little bit shorter this week. Normally we're here on Tuesdays from nine to ten thirty p.m. Eastern at BlogTalkRadio.com MMA Torch, um, and we'll likely be back next Tuesday in our normal time slot as well. Uh, if you're listening throughout the week, you can listen to us live most Tuesdays. Uh, you can also follow us on the web at mmatorch.com, on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash mmatorchfans. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Jamie Pennock and the site at mmatorch. Um, and you can also pick up our uh, app in the Google Play store or uh, the iTunes store as well. You can also pick up our new uh, app, uh, MMA Evolved It's uh, a little fantasy app Where you can um, Vote on the fight results And, and it has a Global leaderboard and, and can follow along with MMA Torch News there as well So um, Before we close out here With just a, just a few minutes left Matt I figure we can take a little time to Look at how Packed next month Is going to be for the UFC Four events in a four-week time span, um, two of which are coming on one weekend. Um, we, we've got a massive Fox card with Ben Henderson against Nate Diaz, Shogun and Gustafson, Penn McDonald, uh, and then a fun fight between Matt Brown and Mike Swick on Fox. Um, and prelims are actually moving to FX for the Fox card instead of Fuel, which is a, a nice move that I'm, I'm hoping they continue going forward. Then we've got uh, an event from Australia with George Sauteropoulos, Ross Pearson, and Husamar Polaris, Hector Lombard, along with the Ultimate Fighter Australia vs. UK um, finals. Then the Ultimate Fighter Friday's finals with Shane Carwin against Matt Mitrione now. That sh- or Not Shane Carwin, I'm sorry, Roy Nelson against Matt Mitrione because Shane Carwin went down injured. Um, and this season we'll see... Essentially, two guys get a chance to come into the UFC because that's how bad this season of tough has been. Finally, UFC 155 closes out the 2012 uh, UFC schedule with JDS, Kane Velasquez, Chris Weidman versus Tim Boach, Phil Davis versus Forrest Griffin, Gray, uh, Joe Lozon against Jim Miller with Gray Maynard injured, and then um, I'm not sure what else they're going to throw on there, but we've also got Alan Belcher, Yushin Okami, Brad Pickett, Eddie Wineland, Chris Lieben, Carlos Vemela. that entire card is just absolutely stacked um matt with just a few minutes left here uh what what are you most looking forward to next month uh and what do you think about such a packed uh ufc schedule
0: uh i love it can't wait uh excited for the ufc uh assuming you know fingers crossed knock on wood that there's no significant injuries in the next couple of weeks uh they're going to really close out with a bang and a, a bit of a tough year for them uh especially injury-wise and just having card shake-ups all over the place. Uh, you know, there's there's two title fights in December and, and two fantastic title fights, too. Uh, being able to see Ben Henderson and Nate Diaz for the lightweight title on free TV is is uh, something I'm really looking forward to. Um, seeing the the full version of Junior Dos Santos, Cain Velasquez, like I think we're going to at 155. Um, and really just that that whole... 155 card, uh, one of the the more stacked events that that we've ever seen. I think, uh, even when when uh, Gray Maynard went down, replacing him with Jim Miller. Joe Lowe's on Jim Miller. I mean, sounds like a a hell of a fight to me. I mean, assuming you know, obviously Junior Dos Santos, Cain uh Chris Weidman, Tim Bosch, Phil Davis, Forrest Griffin. Those are those are uh, obviously I think three locks to be on the main card there. Um and I assume since Alan Belcher is kind of putting himself in position to be a, a title challenger at one hundred eighty five, his fight with Yushin Okami makes sense there and probably Joe Loz on Jim Miller rounds out that, that pay per view card, which means we're getting fights like Chris Lehman, Carlos Demola, and uh Brad Pickett, Eddie Weinland on on a preliminary card. I mean that's that's how deep and loaded that card is. I I can't wait for that card um even even you know the the ultimate fighter uh cards look look pretty decent uh, having a uh, a co-main event on an ultimate fighter finale of of Husmar Polaris Hector Lombard i mean that's that's ridiculous so uh seems like the you know it's a month after thanksgiving obviously but the ufc uh obviously in a, a giving mood for their their fans closing out the year here
1: yeah definitely uh well Matt. Uh, thanks for joining me as always on the show tonight. Uh, I want to thank everyone for listening in this week. Once again, uh, we'll most likely be back next Tuesday from 9 to ten thirty p.m. Eastern Time. Blogtalkradio.com slash MMA Torch. Uh, and again, follow us on the web, MMA Torch.com, Facebook.com slash MMA Torch. And follow me at, on Twitter at Jamie Pennock and the site at MMA Torch. For Matt Pelkey, this is Jamie Pennock signing off.